CEO at Horizon Capital Asia and Patrick Bennett, macro strategist at CIBC World Markets. Thank you, gentlemen, for your participation in Money Talk this morning. Let's have a quick look at the markets before we go. The Nikkei 225 is up 8 tenths of 1% to 26,381. The Kospi are up 7 tenths of 1% at 2,367. The ASX 200, 7,190, almost 1% up. Uh, futures looking to a uh, 0.7% open on the Hang Seng this morning. A cloudy with a few rain patches, maximum temperature around 19 degrees. Moderate to fresh east and northeasterly winds, occasionally strong offshore at first. Uh, the outlook still a few rain patches tomorrow, uh, mild and humid in the latter part of this week, with coastal fog in the morning and at night. 17 Celsius, 93% uh, relative humidity. This is James Ross. Uh, tomorrow morning, Andrew Work will be back on uh, Money Talk. Uh, back chat is next. <laughs> Let's take a look at the news headlines now with Barry. Legislator Lam Chun Singh says workers on the minimum wage haven't had a salary increase for four years. Mr Lam, the chair of the Federation of Hong Kong and Kowloon Labour Unions, wants the wage level adjusted to $46 an hour compared to the $40 that Exco approved yesterday. He said the group used welfare payments for two people as a reference point. Mr Lam said although the increase in the minimum wage was higher than the inflation rate, it wouldn't come into effect until May. In fact, it can catch up the inflation rate for the past two years. But please, please do not forget that the government froze the minimum wages level two years ago. The current minimum wages level, 37.5, start at 2019. But we need to wait until May in this year that we can raise the minimum wages level. This means for some of the grasswood workers, they do not have salary increase for nearly four years. Mr Lam added his voice to calls for the minimum wage to be reviewed annually and not every two years. Washington says up to 100 Ukrainian soldiers will arrive in the U.S. as early as next week to be trained in using the Patriot missile system. They'll undergo what's described as an expedited program. The Pentagon Press Secretary is Brigadier General Patrick Ryder. The training will prepare approximately 90 to 100 Ukrainian soldiers to operate, maintain and sustain the defensive system over a training course expected to last several months. So the, the training will be tailored uh, to provide relevant tactics, techniques and procedures based on the battlefield conditions in Ukraine to enable them to employ that uh, to maximum effect once they are back in Ukraine. The former chief financial officer of the Trump organization has been sentenced to five months imprisonment for tax evasion. Alan Weisselberg has pleaded guilty to the charges that relate to a large-scale tax fraud scheme run by the company for 15 years. Here's the BBC's Samira Hassan. The sentence for Alan Weisselberg was largely predetermined after the former chief financial officer for the Trump organization agreed to a deal last August. In return for his admission of guilt on charges of tax fraud, Mr. Wesselberg was required to pay $2 million in back taxes, waive any right to appeal, and testify in a case against the Trump Organization. That case eventually led to the conviction of two subsidiaries of the company owned by former President Donald Trump and his family. 
New figures released by the European Union show that last year's summer across the continent was the hottest on record by a significant margin. The Copernicus Climate Change Service said it was the second hottest year ever. European temperatures had the highest rate of increase of any continent. Freya Vanberg is a senior scientist at the Copernicus Climate Change Service. What's really to note here, I think, is that the last eight years were all the warmest on record. And they were all also more than one degree above what we call the pre-industrial level for temperatures. And we would look at Europe. Europe was the second warmest on record. And it was especially summer that was the warmest on record by quite a large margin. The World Bank has warned that the global economy is perilously close to falling into recession as the impacts of the Ukraine war and Covid pandemic continue to be felt across the world. It identified the impacts of soaring inflation and high interest rates as the key challenges. A senior bank official, Ihan Kose, had some advice. Policymakers need to look at what they are doing at home, try to improve policy frameworks, try to find ways using fiscal policy in an intelligent way, a targeted way, to help the most vulnerable segments of the society. When you think about the global economy and the global community, it is critical we find ways to work together. And finally, the French government has set out delayed plans to raise the retirement age by two years to 64 by the end of the decade. It renews President Emmanuel Macron's thwarted attempts to overhaul the pension system. The BBC's Lucy Williamson is in Paris. Under the plan, the retirement age in France is set to rise from 62 at the moment to 64 by 2030. The array of special schemes for public sector workers will also be scrapped for new entrants. Pension reform is an explosive topic here, and polls suggest some 80% of people are opposed to the government's plan. Many people here accept the system needs reform, but the timing is bad. The cost of living crisis is biting hard, and polls suggest that a vast majority don't trust President Macron's government to be fair or effective in the measures they choose. There'll be more news on the hour from RTHK. morning. This is Back Chat for Friday, January the 6th, and welcome to the show. I'm Andrew Work. And I'm Jenny Lam. On Wednesday's Back Chat, we're looking at how the reopening of Hong Kong's border with the mainland will boost the economy. Hopes are high that the return of tourists and business travelers will lead to a resurgence, but how much time will it take to pick up from where we left off before the pandemic? Uh, the General Chamber of Commerce in Hong Kong, for one, is striking a cautious note, warning that economic activity likely won't get back to pre-COVID levels this year. It wants more consumption vouchers for consumers and more action to attract workers to make up for a manpower shortage. And after 9.15, we will be looking at whether the government's youth development blueprint is getting through to young people here. Let us know what you think on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. Email us at backchat at rthk.hk. Or give us a call on 233-88266. And kicking off today's show, we'd like to welcome Gary Ng, who's a senior economist at Natixis. Good morning, Gary. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, we've also got Stuart Bailey, the chairman for the Hong Kong Exhibition and Convention Industry Association. Uh, Stuart, welcome to the show. Morning, Andrew. Morning, Jenny. Hey. Morning. Good stuff. So um, let's get the big picture first. Uh, the border is opening up. Uh, Gary Ung, uh, what, what, are your, what are your highlights? What are you most anticipating for the economy over the next, say, let's say, three to six months? Well, I think in the short 
short run, there's definitely still pressure because even though we see that officially, right, it's a full reopening, but there's still a lot of constraint. If you ask people who are actually crossing the border, there's quotas, and I mean, if you come back to Hong Kong, there's also a PCR test requirement, etc. So, so basically, I think there's still a lot of needed greedies that is like um, within this full reopening story, and therefore, I think at least in quarter one, it's quite hard to see this, uh, you know, uh, big boost in retail sales or in the catering services that many people may have expected. And also, if we think of the uh, like ongoing trend right now in mainland, and um, I think it would take time for it to actually reach the herd immunity. It would take time for people to actually adapt to this new reality. And of course, um, um, uh, like like before they actually start traveling to somewhere else. So I think in the next uh, four to six months, it's still quite likely that Hong Kong economic uh, growth will uh, not enter recession again, but it will not grow at a very quick speed, probably at only around 1%. However, we're looking at a more optimistic, uh, pos- positive um, picture uh, after that, which is in the second half of this year. So, so you're saying second half of this year, what do you think Hong Kong needs to do to prepare for this uh, anticipated surge in number of travellers from the mainland? Sure. So I think the best way to prepare for it is really, I think, for business, I think it's really a market approach that, like, I mean, if they actually expect more tourists, then they would actually hire more people. They would actually, you know, uh, prepare or maybe actually uh, actually open more stores within the city. And I think we already seen some of this uh, trend already. If you look at the, uh, let's say, the pharmacy industry in Hong Kong, we actually see more shops opening in the past, you know, uh, uh, two to three months, which is clear a likely trend that they're preparing for this uh, border reopening again. And of course, the same trend can be extended to hospitality, to catering services, and also to the retail industry, and especially even in the aviation industry as well, because, um, I mean, you would definitely need more planes to actually get people in and out of Hong Kong. So this is really uh, from the business side. But I think from the government side, it's really about sending the clear message that Hong Kong is really uh, reopening, and then things are actually getting normal again. So I think they would need to spend some money in terms of attracting tourists um, to Hong Kong because I think a lot of the competitors around the region is not only within mainland but um, around Asia has been doing the same thing to boost the domestic or international tourism industry and Hong Kong simply cannot fall behind. Yeah, when we look at the international tourism conventions, exhibitions, a big part of that. Uh, Stuart Bailey, that is your domains. Uh, I hear things are starting off a little bit slow. What's your, you know, what are you anticipating on that front for, for the uh, exhibition industry? Yeah, look, I thought it was quite interesting, actually. Your, your researcher sent me an article from the South China Morning Post, um, and the headline was uh, uh, Chinese exhibitors lamenting the lack of, uh, of business at the, the fair that's going on at the moment. Um, so I, I visited yesterday, and, and I spoke to many of the participants, uh, and, and I wonder whether or not I went to the same show as that journalist, because everybody that I spoke to was happy to be back in Hong Kong. Um, you know, I spoke to 20 or 30 exhibitors, they showed me their order books. Uh, they uh, particularly, I, I went and targeted the ones from the mainland to see sort of what their thoughts were. Um, and, and, and look, they showed me they, they've got orders of, you know, hundreds of orders coming through. Um, and, and again, this is a trade show, so this is not a consumer show where one person buys one thing. Uh, they often have minimum order quantities in the thousands. Uh, and there was one lady uh, from Shanghai who was selling baby strollers. Uh, and she showed me she had 200 leads you know, each one of, of more than a thousand baby strollers and, and was very, very happy. Now, I mean, you ask them the question, is it the same as it was in 2019 or 2020? 
No, of course. You know, the, the, the volume of visitors uh, hasn't come back yet. Um, but I don't think anybody that I spoke to was really expecting the volume to be there. Um, the, uh, the border, you know, only opened three days ago, let's not forget. We, we understand the problems that China's going through at the moment with, uh, with you know, so the, the, uh, getting towards herd immunity. Uh, let's throw into the fact that we've also got, you know, Chinese New Year in 10 days' time. Uh, so people might be reluctant to travel uh, because of that coming up as well. Um, so, so, look, I think there's a combination of factors here. But the important thing with trade shows is that you get the, the serious buyers coming to the fair. Uh, and what, from what I saw yesterday was, okay, you know, there weren't huge crowds at the show, but they didn't need to be. The serious buyers were there. So, so I, I actually, you know, despite sort of, you know, sort of your, your leading question there, I thought it was a pretty good show. Well, well, according to that same article that, that um, I also read that you looked at, um, they, they said that the, the number of uh, visitors from overseas, they had a few hundred and mainly uh, countries such as uh, India and Malaysia. Um, from what you could see, wh where are these orders coming from? Are, are they from the you know, big chain stores in the U.S. or wherever? Yeah, that's right. I mean, look, I, I, I met a buyer who was from the United States, uh, and he was telling me that uh, the uh, the birth rate, had, which has been declining in the United States for, for almost a decade, uh, has sort of started to tick up again. You know, perhaps because of lockdowns and pandemics and things. Um, but there, you know, there more babies are being born in the U.S., and so therefore there is a higher demand for baby products. He also explained to me that obviously there is a, a kind of a, an ongoing cost of living crisis due to high energy prices, etc. Uh, and so, therefore, people are looking for sort of more affordable products, uh, which is obviously one of the strengths uh, of manufacturing from mainland China. So, so yeah, they, they, there were buyers from the United States there, and, and you know, they were they were there um, to purchase the, the, the latest kit. Uh, and I was surprised. There's, there's quite a lot of innovation in uh, in the world of baby strollers, which I, there's a lot of off-roading going on with babies, which I, I didn't know about. But, but yeah, look, I, I, I felt that, you know, whilst, it's, I think it's unrealistic to expect it to be bang straight back to what it was. I mean, look, let, let's, be, let's be honest. In 20, 2018, Hong Kong welcomed 65 million tourists to the city. Uh, now, last year, the figures haven't come out, but it's likely to be one or two million uh, tourists. So the, the whole of the infrastructure isn't there to support the number of people coming in before. Uh, I don't know if you've been through the airport recently. I, I went away um, just over New Year's. Uh, and the airport <laughs> is slowly getting back to life, but there's a, a fraction of the usual number of flights. Mm -hmm. so, so, you know, the infrastructure around, uh, you know, travel, uh, around whether business travel or leisure travel, it, it needs some time to come back. Uh, but I know there's a huge amount of work being done at the moment in order to speed up that process and make sure that we are ready uh, to welcome tourists back to the city. Gary, you made the point about businesses uh, are each making their own decisions about how to ramp up in response to where they think the business is going to come from. But is the underlying infrastructure in place to support it, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, if, if I'm setting up my restaurant or hotel to bring more tourists in, is the airport geared up to, to bring them through? Are the border controls geared up to bring more people through the bus companies to deliver them to my doorstep? Um, what, what is your sense in terms of how the underlying infrastructure supporting the economy is, is prepared or not prepared? 
sure, sure. I think it would still take time for this type of infrastructure to actually get in line with uh, like the preparation of more uh, tourists. Because of course, if you uh, like go to the airport, which I was there uh, recently, you would see that it's quite empty, and then you know, the speed is like much quicker than before in terms of you know custom clearance, etc. Which also means that well, there's a lot of capacity that is you know uh, uh, not being able to fulfill. And then of course, if we talk about the infrastructure, we would think of you know buses, train, and also planes and all of this infrastructure simply hasn't really um, like been uh, pushed back to the full capacity that we have seen before the uh, pandemic because, I mean, a large part of the planes that was stationed in Hong Kong before were still in desert. And, I mean, if you talk to the people from the aviation industry, it would take like two to three months to actually get them back to Hong Kong and let along the high-speed train and also like the different quota that Hong Kong government uh, would have implemented uh, right now. So um, definitely, I think this are really the areas that um, the government would need to work on and also liaise with the industry to basically give them a very clear message and roadmap on this is what is going to happen and therefore they can actually adopt the strategy in terms of, you know, uh, like helping Hong Kong to, you know, become normalized again because, I mean, oh, Hong Kong is still different from mainland in a certain way. I mean, uh, like uh, it would uh, need to ask the business or tell them a very a clear picture so that they can actually expand the capacity it's not like, for example, Beijing can tell the national uh, flagship carriers to expand the you know, number of flights probably in uh, you know, one or two nights. So I think well, we also need to uh, basically uh, 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 look at this reality in Hong Kong. So the government would need to work on this uh, to, to, to help Hong Kong to reopen even quicker. Yeah, you, you, you know, uh, South Korea um, and, and Japan, you know, they... they uh, mainland China just um, started imposing uh, visa quotas or, or stopping visas altogether because because um, it is a little bit of a tit for tat for that um, uh, uh, COVID test requirement. Um, do you see more countries um, doing that, and what is the potential impact on Hong Kong? I think it is possible to see more uh, conscious following because after all, I think it seems to me that beyond is a health question, it's also a geopolitical question that like uh, when uh, you have measures like this, it's likely to see retaliation uh, against each other, which is uh, quite likely to happen as uh, based on what we've seen in the past, you know, three or maybe even five years if we include the uh, trade war. So I think for the case of uh, Hong Kong, um, it's still likely that uh, it will face a more lenient approach from uh, other countries. But however, I think uh, it will still impact the role of Hong Kong in terms of whether it can be a transit hub of uh, mainland tourists to uh, basically transit in Hong Kong to other places for tourism or the other way around. Because uh, after all, um, of course, Hong Kong uh, managed to attract a lot of tourists to Hong Kong. But also, it's also a very important transit hub uh, for, 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 for basically uh, tourists to actually um, like go to mainland or the other way around. So um, definitely, it will slow down the uh, recovery of the aviation industry in Hong Kong. I'm not too worried about the domestic, um, like, uh, uh, like, uh, like tourism, or whether it's outbound, inbound between Hong Kong and other countries, mm. but it's more about this, uh, uh, like, um, like slowly recovering a transit road that Hong Kong may have um, within the uh, industry uh, uh, sector. So uh, just some figures, because um, I think within Asia, um, generally the aviation industry has already recovered to around 50% of the pandemic level. For mainland China, it's around 25%. So Hong Kong is kind of, um, you know, uh, somewhere 
uh, in between or close to uh, the lower bound of the figure. So um, we are looking at a slow recovery uh, path if there are more restrictions. Yeah, uh, and with the with these restrictions, um, you know, Jenny makes a great point. And uh, Stuart, I want to know with uh, you know when when these countries put COVID uh, require entry requirements on, they put it on China and Hong Kong. But right now, the new restrictions going into China are just China, not Hong Kong. But are your members uh, getting panic calls from Japanese and Korean exhibitors or Japanese or Korean buyers saying, oh, my oh my God, does this apply to us? Like, are they confused about this? Are you having to tell them, no, 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 you can still come. It's fine. Yeah, look, I, I mean, I, to be honest with you, I think this is a little bit of a red herring. Um, yes, of course, you know, for, for, for things which are coming up immediately, um, then, you know, those, those countries that are placing restrictions on, on travel, uh, between China, uh, you know, it is a concern, uh, but I think this is going to be very short-lived. I mean, you know, the speed with which uh, China is acquiring herd immunity, uh, you know, is, is rapid. And I think, you know, by the time we get the other side of Chinese New Year, uh, which is say, only 10 days away, uh, I, I think all of this will be behind us. Um, I just wanted to come back on, the, on one of the points that Gary was making, though, mm. uh, about the, the government's role in this. Um, and it's 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 often that I come on here and, 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 and criticise the government's approach, um, but I have to say in this instance, they are doing a, a good job. They, they, I've never seen quite this much determination to solve some of the challenges that we have in bringing back visitors to Hong Kong. And, and we have got a number of challenges. I mean, well, I, uh, uh, I, I'm attending a, a tourism recovery industry task force uh, later this morning. Uh, and uh, the Secretary for Culture, uh, Sport and Tourism, Mr. Kevin Young, will be uh, together with us. Uh, and, and, and we'll be looking at how can we solve these problems, because it's, it's basically it's, it's all infrastructure. You know, we, we've, with the industries that, that support tourism uh, have all have to let, you know, lots of members of staff go. You can't run hotels fully staffed if you've got nobody staying in them. Sure. The same with airlines and the same with, you know, sort of restaurant shops uh, mm. and all the things that, uh, that Gary has mentioned. But... You know, we've got, uh, in March, you know, we've got Art Basel and Art Central. Uh, we've got Clock and Flap. Uh, we've got the Rugby Sevens. You know, we've got... And, and so there's an awful lot that's happening. Um, but I, I'm pleased to see that the government has really kind of rolled up its sleeves uh, and, and, and is, is engaging with the industries uh, that I just mentioned to try and help them um, to, to solve some of these problems. It's, it's, it is going to be difficult. Uh, and it's not, you know, thankfully, uh, you know, in some ways, uh, the U-shaped recovery uh, will, will help us um, because it's not like we're suddenly going to get, you know, inundated with, with, with millions of visitors. It is going to come back slowly. Um, but, you know, we, we do need to solve some of these problems and the government is helping with that. All right. Well, I know I'm going to be going to some of those events uh, and definitely inviting my friends from around the world. Uh, Stuart Bailey, we know you got to leave a little bit early. We appreciated having you on the show today. That's Stuart Bailey, Chairman, Hong Kong Exhibition and Convention Industry Association. Uh, Gary's going to stick with us. I'm just going to slip in a couple of emails and Facebook uh, comments here. TC emails us and says, uh, the pre-pandemic economy was unhealthy due to over-reliance on mainland Chinese spending, including parallel shopping. The silver lining of the past three years was that Hong Kong learned how to get by without mainland money. Um, with the state of the mainland Chinese economy, I'm not sure how much of it will flow to Hong Kong. And its second point is about a universal cash handout to all HKPRs. Permanent residence is the most effective and fairest way to distribute money. It's much more so than spending vouchers. That's from TC. Um, yeah, Gary, uh, over-reliance on mainland Chinese spending. I mean, it hasn't exactly been a great couple of years for the Hong Kong economy <laughs> without it. Maybe did we get by without it or did we definitely feel the, 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 you know, the bite? 
Well, I think um, uh, we need to look at the problem at different stage. I think if we look at it at the earlier um, pandemic stage, such as, um, well, if not too early, 2021, then actually Hong Kong has done quite a good job because without any tourists, we managed to actually sustain a very, very, uh, quite a good uh, retail sales figure, which basically means that like people cannot spend their money overseas, you can only spend in Hong Kong. So we cannot also underestimate the spending power of local people. But of course, at the same time, uh, it also means that that was only a short-lived phenomenon because um, now uh, people can travel to somewhere else. Uh, definitely, there will be some outflows of capital, which also means that uh, Hong Kong will need this return of um, like uh, uh, like um, tourists from elsewhere to actually help uh, its uh, retail or, or basically tourism-related industry, which will become more normal again. So it is in fact true that I think uh, Hong Kong is very very dependent on uh, China in terms of uh, this type of services or tourism industry. So I, I, I do think that it will be good for Hong Kong to diversify a little bit so that um, like the, 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 like the whole uh, business uh, source of revenue is a bit more balanced. But at the same time, if you have such a large market uh, next to you and it is quite easy to come to Hong Kong, then I think it's natural for, for businesses to actually tap on um, uh, that market. It seems to me a natural uh, economic phenomenon here. So um, definitely, I do think uh, Hong Kong should promote it a bit more to uh, like people outside of China. But at the same time, I think, uh, well, um, if the Chinese market is right next to it, then I, I, I think it will um, like uh, still stick with us. But of course, I just want to mention a few challenges um, that um, we may face in the future because things have actually changed in the past two to uh, three years within the mainland as well because we see more free trade zones uh, uh, built in Shanghai or Hainan. Uh, basically, they don't really necessarily uh, come to Hong Kong to shop. It's not the only choice anymore. And then uh, it's also about uh, whether Hong Kong can compete with other locations within the mainland or around Asia to attract our tourists. So this will be two more, I think, a structural point that beyond the cyclical rebound that we're going to see that Hong Kong will need to face eventually. Yeah, of, of course, one of the ways that people uh, spend money has changed over the pandemic is simply to buy online. Um, and, and, and that way of shopping from Hong Kong, uh, you know, through, through the, the e-commerce uh, industry in the mainland uh, has increased um, over the pandemic. So do you see a sort of paradigm change in, in consumer spending that way, positively, maybe? I think it's more like a shift of uh, opportunities because uh, if we look at the uh, different uh, type of retail, so it could be online, it could be offline, but I don't really think the two can actually fully displace each other because at the end of the day, people may still want to travel, it may be cheaper to buy certain things in Hong Kong or, or they, they, they have different reasons to, to be here. So for the online community, definitely there is a, a growing potential because well, people are now more used to buying stuff online and the whole uh, uh, system or mechanism is more developed, especially not only within mainland because it has been a uh, quite good uh, even before the pandemic but with this international e-commerce um like uh like that hong kong can actually link between other countries with china um, definitely it will be a bonus but at the same time i think for the offline um industry um it will actually face more challenges because there there, there will be a bit of displacement but still it will be it will not be like a full uh, replacement of um you know uh, uh what we see because i think as uh income continue to grow in uh, mainland, um, well, there, there will still be opportunities because people will still uh, have the demand to actually spend more.
You know, the General Chamber of Commerce suggested maybe another round of the spending voucher might help. What do you think? Um, definitely, yes. I think uh, if we talk about spending voucher, um, uh, or, or it's definitely the injection of government money towards consumers, and they would need to spend. And um, definitely, it is something that is quite positive for any uh, consumption-related uh, industry. But however, I do think that uh, the government may also be a bit more uh, conservative this time around, because if we look at the fiscal situation in uh, the Hong Kong government, is actually not that well because uh, we have spent so much money on the COVID-related measures. In the past uh, three years, so um, yeah, I think it's helpful for the industry, but also think that the size may not be, um, you know, as big as before. We got it. We got a couple of minutes uh, before we go to the top of the hour and break for the news. But Richard Mahun on our Facebook page says uh, the last round of consumption vouchers was used by people to get out of here. Travel agents and airlines did well. Others not so much. Um, do you think that's true? Did you know was that money spent in getting out of town, and and uh, did some of it? You know, flow out of here. People, people use that little bit of money to spend, and then you know, use their other money to spend it outside of Hong Kong. I think this is actually possible because uh, I think we uh, have a different environment compared to, of course, uh, last uh, like two years ago, and then now it's much easier for actually Hong Kong. Uh, people or residents to actually travel elsewhere. So it's normal that some people may decide that they would want to use it to book aviation uh, or like uh, tickets, etc. But I think this is uh, fine because at the end of the day, I think uh, still uh, the aviation industry is part of the Hong Kong economy. They also employ, you know, more staff and and, and they, they can actually have more investment in the city. So I, I wouldn't think this is something that is, uh, you know, uh, very negative. I'm a bit worried about, you know, the higher inflation and also about the repayment of mortgages and all of these factors may actually bite the uh, consumer sentiment which means that they may not be willing to spend as much as before so so, so the consumption voucher has now become a relief for a lot of uh, a large part of this population rather than uh, like encouraging them to spend more so I think this is really uh, not a question about whether they spend the money in Hong Kong or like with the outbound tourism but whether they want to spend more or maybe it was, you know, as opposed to juicing the economy, it was maybe uh, more effective in just helping people to get by. Gary, uh, stay on the line. We're going to welcome you back to the second part of the show. That's our senior economist from Natixis uh, joining us uh, today online. He's going to be joining the second part of the show with uh, an expert from the great Canadian real estate firm of Colliers and their Hong Kong office. So maybe we'll get a little bit more into the real estate for the second part of the show. Uh, in the meantime, uh, I'm going to give you a quick update on the weather. We're looking at cloudy with a few rain patches. Uh, maximum temperature will be around 19 degrees. And uh, that rain is going to continue for the next few days. I've been here with Andrew Work and Jenny Lamb on uh, Backchat. The temperature is 18 degrees Celsius. And the humidity is currently standing at 90%. to the news on RTHK. And welcome back to Back Chat. I'm Andrew Work here with Jenny Lamb today. Uh, today we're talking the Hong Kong economy's prospects uh, upon the opening of the border with China. Today uh, we've got with us, we had in the first part of the show, Gary Young, Senior Economy at Natixis. He continues with us, but now we also welcome to the show Cynthia Ng, who is the Head of Retail Services from Colliers Hong Kong. Good morning. Welcome to the show, Cynthia. Welcome. Thank you. Hey, great to have you on. I'm going to hit a quick Facebook uh, comment from Marcus Langston. Uh, he says, until Facebooks are not law, why would anyone want to come to Hong Kong risking $5,000 fines and living like it's 2020? You can go anywhere else that doesn't have such a dumb, non-scientific law. Um, 
Where do we start there? Maybe I'll start with Gary. Gary, uh, you know, the, the mask thing is not unique to Hong Kong. Singapore, you still have to wear it in public transport. You go to Japan. Japan and Thailand, it's not law, but culturally, everybody still wears it. You know, I've been recently. Um, is that something, I mean, is that something that factors into economic modeling? <laughs> Probably not. Well, in, yeah, indeed, uh, I just came back from Japan a few days ago, so I can definitely, um, you know, have a full feeling that it's actually even tougher in terms of the mask mandatory uh, requirement, which is from a social pressure in Japan, but in Hong Kong, it's really from the government. So, so I do think that well, it's one of the, um, well, um, concerns that people may have in mind, but it's it's also not the decisive concern uh, as long as you can actually travel in and out quite freely and then do what you want, um, you know, uh, in any places or exhibition that you may want to attend. So, of course, it's flowing uh, to more towards uh, living quality on whether what whether people want to come back to Hong Kong for a more uh, permanent basis. But in terms of short-term travelers, I, I do not really think this is a very important question. But of course, if Hong Kong is able to lift that, it will be positive. But otherwise, um, I wouldn't think it's a, like too much a negative drag uh, for um, like the tourism or the reopening that Hong Kong is undergoing right now. Okay, part part of the opening uh, going on right now, and Cynthia, we talked about this a little a little bit in the first part of the show. Just touch briefly on it. Uh, of course, is what's happening with retail. You're the head of retail services. Um, Gary suggested that some of the businesses, I think, Gary, did you say pharmacies in particular were, were kind of starting to, to ramp up again? Cynthia, where, where are you seeing green shoots in the retail sector? Um, I think the mainly the sectors that um, may see the positive um, outcome of this border reopening would eventually be the bigger brands or the international brands that have always been eyeing Hong Kong as the um, uh, a first stop or um, as an expansion city. Pharmaceutical, um, I agree. However, in the last three years, we have seen pharmaceutical um, lining up with a lot of the online platforms in order to ease um, the wider community to be able to um, purchase their products. Having said that, I think some of the bigger chains that not only sell pharmaceutical but also other variety of products like um, the ones we see from Japan or Korea may still enter Hong Kong with more um, stores that we will see in the upcoming few years. Uh, so presumably this this current Panadol panic is not going to last forever. Um, but one of the things that, that uh, mainland visitors do come to buy in Hong Kong are luxury goods. Do you see uh, that happening? I mean, what's the, what's the timeline we're thinking about um, recovery in that? I think it will be very, very um, gradual and a cautious expansion for the luxury to pick up. Um, it's only because that it won't be a huge rebound because retail is a lot about the sentiment, about the shopping pattern and the confidence. So we won't be able to compare this year with um, the market boom at 2023, uh, sorry, 2013. So we will see a very gradual and slow recovery. However, uh, I can see a very positive um, growth on this. I mean... You know, when you look around Central, it doesn't look like any of the luxury shops have shut up. But you go to Causeway Bay and like even on Hennessy Road, you see a lot of these bare shell electronics stores that have like they go in there for three weeks because nobody else is renting the property. Um, like in terms of actual transactions, uh, because Cynthia, that, that, that's your expertise, right? Actual transactions. Are landlords getting tougher on retail because they're expecting better times? Are new retail companies coming in? 
and are the uh, are, are your customers in retail coming around and saying, "Hey, I need new properties. Get out there and, and find them for me." Both parties are definitely playing the wait and see game. Uh. Um, landlords are flexible, and they will be more negotiable when it comes to a bigger tenant group who is more sustainable and have got that um, financial background uh, for a permanent lease. However, for a smaller brand, the land the landlord may um, stick to their uh, original um, asking rental. On the tenant side, it's definitely not um, in the area of uh, I, I need to have this shop, like you know, by this quarter. They are also playing the wait and see game, and also looking at their P brand in the same sector, how each other is doing. And having said that, we, uh, they've only just come out of a very, very, um, I would say, gloomy period. They want to enjoy a little bit of the, you know, booming sales first and a wait and see. We will see an actual recovery probably starting to happen in the second half of this year. Okay. Okay. Now, Andrew mentioned that, you know, nowadays when you go to Central, you, you're not seeing those long lines anymore outside the, you know, the big luxury shop. But what we do see are the closures of uh, uh, your local shops, your mom and pop shops, your, even very old restaurants. Um, what is going to happen to all the, the, the retail space that's all boarded up right now? For Central, um, a lot of the customers aren't um, tourists, but actually uh, the loyal customers, the actual local uh, tycoon families who visit uh, at, at certain hours. That we that they're not the ones definitely you can see outside the shop, and they they do have their uh, repetitive sales from uh, certain network. Rather than TST, which is uh, mainly tourism, you will see um, a lot more queuing uh, scenes outside the luxury shops. And for the um, high street shops, where you see a lot of uh, pop-ups. Uh, um, they're mainly owned by probably family offices or individual investors. They are the ones who, who may continue with another pop-up or if they're on the prime thirsty high street, they will try to attract um, a bigger group that they used to have probably from 8, 10 or 12 years ago. They're still trying to get a brand that has that um, strength. Otherwise, they may continue with their pop-up, but just with different brands, because usually um, the pop-ups on the first year high street are able to pay a certain amount of rental that is still impressive to the landlords in the current days. Mm. Gary, uh, you know, what does your modeling tell us about the Hong Kong property and real estate market uh, going forward? And when, when are we going to know when we've turned a corner? I mean, is it, is it going to be visible signs like shops filling up at the ground level or is it going to be or, or do you look more at the, the numbers that are produced from official sources? Sure, sure. So I think if we first look from the residential uh, market, then obviously uh, we st will still need to see a further decline in home prices. Rental, like uh, like uh, growth, may actually rebound because of uh, there will be more people in Hong Kong. That that will be the first sign. And I do think this will be the same for the commercial property sector if we look at the retail industry, because of course, um, like people may bet on uh, like the uh, high, more like higher property values or etc. But still, the macro environment is not 
not too supportive for you know higher property prices, no matter whether it's in retail or whether it's in residential or generally in the whole property market in Hong Kong. So therefore, I think we need to see rent actually uh, pick up, uh, which actually reflect the immediate demand that um, like um, like shop or well, well, like basically businesses need more uh, space to actually run their business or they're looking for expansion. But this is not likely to come in the next, I think, uh, like three to four months. It will probably come in the second half of next year. I totally agree with like uh, our conversation today that it's not really a, a very short-term uh, V-shaped rebound. It's more like a more prolonged uh, process, which is still positive, but it's not going to come overnight. So um, we will need to see vacancy rate going down, uh, rental growth uh, going up before we actually see any rebound in transaction and also the, the, the uh, basically uh, uh, short prices um, in Hong Kong. Because, yeah, I mean, if interest rates go up, I mean, landlords are going to start to feel their, the, the pinch on the mortgage side, and so they're going to want to raise rents. Uh, are they going to have the capacity to, to do so? You're thinking maybe only in the second half of the year? Yes, that's exactly. I think it's really a tug of war, really, between this demand and supply, because um, unless there are really more uh, demand in terms of renting or more space, it's quite hard for a landlord to actually hike prices excessively. If you look at the uh, vacancy rate, of course, in some of the large malls, it's okay, but if you look at the like uh, those uh, shops beyond those uh, large groups and malls, then um, it's actually quite bad. I, I think it's quite clear if you walk, um, you know, in the street. So um, yeah, I think it will take a while to actually see this recovery. Cynthia, are you more interested in interest rates or transactions when you're trying to figure out where things are going to go? Um, I think it will have a, a, a little impact. However, there are um, a lot of investors who have. Uh, kept an eye on the uh, retail shops and arcades, and they have already like uh, taken into um, account of the interest rate. And I can't see at this moment that it will hinder their the their, their interest. But this year, I can still see a greater volume of transactions on this. You, you know, something away from central, we do see um, boarded up shop fronts in in some of the malls. I don't know, in Changkwano and in Yunlong and those places. Those shops are not going to be able to come back, according to what you're saying. You're saying we will see the bigger brands come back. What is going to happen to those shop spaces? I mean, you're talking about, you know, Gering's talking about maybe maybe rent will have to go up, but we actually have vacant shop spaces. What what do you what do you think will, will happen to these, uh, you know, all the places further out of town? Um, yes, the bigger brands are coming back, uh, mainly in the core district. For neighbourhood malls, we still see a very strong local consumption demand. Therefore, when you do see um, certain vacancies in the current malls, that it could be it could be um, a, a a renovation uh, period or a uh, um, a signed up lease but yet open because we see a lot of neighbourhood malls are actually doing quite well and the rental growth has been quite um, healthy with a, with, a, with a small curve up. So especially with uh, Chongkwano um, in the O-South area where all the new residential is located, we can see a very healthy sales uh, performance happening there. And are we are we expecting the return of the uh, the five times a day cross border shopper? Uh, you know who's who's bringing 
uh, basic necessities that they're bringing back for retail in China? Is that is is, is retail gearing up to service that market, or do they think that's not going to happen for a while? I don't think that's going to happen for a while, especially five times a day or week. Um, it will it will only gradually pick up, but um, a, a definitely a very sanguine uh, market and sentiment. Okay. Uh, and, and I'm wondering for both of you, we've just got a couple of more minutes here uh, for this segment. Uh, are there any black swans that you, I mean, I, I guess the definition of a black swan is you don't see it coming. But, you know, you guys are smarter than most. Are there some things that you're looking out for that, that could throw a, a spanner in the works and, and kind of screw everything up? Gary? Uh, well, um, I do think from this reopening story, it's pretty much everything is uh, more certain than before because, I mean, last year we are really talking about uncertainty, but this year it's really about more certain environment. But still, I think the only thing that, I mean, at least for as an economist, that we cannot control is that, well, if there is a new variant and basically if um, the zero COVID actually return in uh, China, then, of course, it would be a very big blow, um, like with this, uh, uh, like, um, restriction around the world again. But simply, I think from what we see right now, um, I don't think, um, you know, that will come uh, at all. Cynthia, quick word before you have to go. And she's gone. Uh, thank you very much, <laughs> Cynthia, for joining us on the show today, head of retail services, Colliers. Um, Gary, uh, last up, I mean, we've, we've talked a lot about real estate. We've talked about uh, consumer spending and things like that. Are there any other, you know, we've talked about infrastructure. We haven't talked about the ports at all. Um, are, do you have any concerns about Hong Kong's ability to maintain its position as a, a supply chain node for international uh, transport? Well, indeed, I think it's one of the areas that people always talk about nowadays because it's indeed very challenging because, of course, geopolitics is like one of the major concerns. But it's also about this diverging growth between, you know, China versus the rest of Asia, such as India and ASEAN. So it's really about uh, whether Hong Kong only want to uh, bank on the uh, uh, fast-growing Chinese market, as in the past, or maybe it's better right now to actually tap on every market, of course, including China, to maintain its role as an international trade hub, but not only a trade hub for China. So I think it is more indeed uh, uh, like a structural question that um, about the role of the city uh, going forward. Um, you know, Gary, uh, of course, uh, the um, a, a lot of that globalized trade um, has actually gone to Singapore during the pandemic. How tricky is it for Hong Kong to um, get some of that trade back? Mm. I think for the trade with mainland, Hong Kong will still be the best spot to uh, do business because, of course, um, well, no one can change the location of Hong Kong and also, um, mm. I mean, the infrastructure is simply more integrated uh, with mainland. However, I think for Singapore, um, it's really about uh, nowadays business realize that there may be alternative um, for certain areas that, um, uh, especially uh, things have changed during the pandemic, and then well, Singapore may do a little bit better than Hong Kong in the past few years, which basically offer another uh, business ecosystem uh, that can compete with Hong Kong in some area. So I think this will be my major concern in, ter in terms of, you know, uh, uh, like uh, the competitiveness of Hong Kong versus uh, the, the, the basically Asia or basically other um, um, competitors. So um, definitely um, it's hard to say Hong Kong has been lost in the past uh, few years, but I do think there's also room or, or basically Hong Kong has the advantage to catch up as well.
Okay. Uh, Gary, that's great. Thanks for coming on the show today. Gary Ung, Senior Economist at Natixis. And for uh, regular RTHK listeners, of course, if you want to get more markets, finance, economics, uh, you, of course, you want to listen to Money Talk that's on from 8 to 8.30. Sometimes we have Gary's very, very bright colleague, Alicia Garcia Herrero, on the show uh, as well. And uh, you're listening to Back Chat on RTHK. You're listening to Backchat. Call us on 233-88-266 and have your say. All right, Andrew Work and Jenny Lamb on Backchat. And we are looking uh, now at the new government policy, the Youth Development Blueprint. I'm guessing it has something to do with youth being developed. <laughs> yeah. um, we're going to welcome to the show now Carrie Lee, who is the chairperson of the Hong Kong Southern District Youth Alliance. Uh, good morning, Carrie. Good morning, Andrew. Good hey. Morning. So, Kerry, so um, you know, there was a poll out. So they, they, they have the new youth development blueprint, and then we have the results of this survey where they went out and asked young people about it, and they triumphantly proclaimed that 90% of youth were supportive of this policy but confused about its objectives. So <laughs> I don't know how they're so supportive of something they don't understand. Maybe you can help us by explaining what is the youth development blueprint. Well, oh, well, okay. Um... Uh, actually, our members and me are very uh, so glad that uh, our government has released a youth development blueprint last month. So uh, there are over 116 concrete actions and measures of put forward, as we know. So we have uh, designed the questionnaire and spread it through the internet and the social media. So uh, just as you mentioned, 90% of people are satisfied with the blueprint, so which is really out of our expectation. But, yeah, uh, however, me too. Yeah. So, yeah, so what uh, are what are some of the promises you're giving these young people? Um, promises uh, giving young people. Uh, I think most of them think that uh, they're more interested in the contribution chapter because they want to know how the government operates and uh, how to uh, build up something in the community. So they are willing to take uh, take the mem uh, the members of recommendations given me for the youth. Um, and also, there are 24 people um, are interested in the HOPE chapter because it's related to the career planning and development. And uh, um, it's also mentioned how to adjust the housing needs of young people. You know, this is a very uh, hot issue in the society. So, um, as you mentioned, there are also some confusion about the, uh, uh, about on this uh, policy of uh, so I think there are three major reasons. Uh, first of all, uh, the lack of discussion among the youth, uh, because as you know, uh, our teenager and young people just uh, maybe care about entertainment and uh, or care about their themselves. So the news uh, coverage or the topical event or even the policy, uh, something like that, they they might not discuss so much. And the second reason. I think there are almost 120 million young people in Hong Kong. They don't believe or even don't have the confidence that they can be beneficial from this uh, policy and measure. So uh, they, uh, as we know that the quota of each action actually has the uh, limit. Uh, so uh, this is the second reason. And then finally, the third reason, they don't have so much confidence that government can implement this last action and the measure in the short term because uh, this development blueprint work covers a wide range of policy areas and strengthens the course of the work of different policy bureaus. So 
Um, this is what we found in this question there. Do you know what's in? Do you know what's in the blueprint? Please, pardon do, me. Do you know what's in the blueprint? So, sorry. <laughs> you, you said you said there are 150 different actions recommended in the blueprint. Can do you know what they are? Some of them. Oh, okay, okay. Um, oh, the first of all, uh, about housing. Yes. Okay. Because, uh, yes. Uh, uh, housing, housing problem. Uh, because uh, they do believe that um, uh, this is not only the youth issue. It's not uh, traded as a sole part. Actually, to assist the uh, youth, uh, I think the government needs a more comprehensive measure and a policy on different classes, stages, and the uh, department on uh, to adjust the housing problem. I think um, this is the big problem and uh, uh, they is confused, yes. Yeah, well, what about job opportunities? Uh, job opportunity, uh, I have ever uh, communicated with them. Um, uh, for job community, uh, in Hong Kong, they don't think the career planning education is good enough because uh, I have ever uh, take them to some program uh, to meet different professional people and they say that well that's good uh, because in our school uh, for the career planning uh, the teacher just told us uh, um, uh, uh, how, what to do and how to do uh, uh, in, in the classroom so they don't have so much outdoor experience to uh, know uh, how the society operates uh, what's in how to uh, how to develop my career? So um, this is also uh, can reduce the confidence for uh, to them to for the job opportunity. Can I ask you how old are these people you're talking about? These these what's youth? a youth? What's yeah. a youth? Yeah. Um, around fifteen to twenty five. Yes. Yeah, so, so fifteen year olds, it's it's normal not to know what your career is, and they're just yeah. too young. Yes. Um, uh, yes, because different age has different needs, you know that one group of young people actually cannot represent all the young people. For example, as a student, they must struggle with their study, uh, which uh, subject or major is good for the career development, so they care more, more about the higher education. But as an adult, uh, maybe uh, like me, I'm 30, so uh, I have a job and a stable income. I hope to start my family and a private space to from our um my own family. So housing purchasing is one of the pressures in my life. So um, this is what we communicate. Uh, and uh, uh, I, I have found a lot of things and uh, I'm so glad that I have this service and I can know what uh, is our youth uh, thought. Mm. So uh, of course, I'm sure you didn't memorize all 150 actions, but do you have one or two that are your favorites that caught your eye and made you think, wow, you know, when I was a youth five or six years ago, this really would have helped. Do, do you have one or two favorite actions from this blueprint that you think are really going to make a difference? Um, I think uh, member self-recommendation scheme for youth is uh, one of my favorites because uh, um, I just want to mention, actually, our young people uh, want to know uh, how our government operates and they also want to contribute to their society. So I think this uh, uh, self-recommendation scheme can give the opportunity to the youth to know more about 
uh, how our society runs. You know, one of the things that the government has been pushing is for young people to see a future in the Greater Bay Area. What do you think of that idea? Um, that's good, Ojo, because uh, actually our alliance is holding this uh, uh, this program like this. Uh, for them, it's uh, I think um, it's a good education uh, method because um, actually for the young people, they don't have so much perspective on the commercial thing to think uh, to to uh, to think about it. But uh, for me, I think uh, to come uh, to let them. Uh, compare with different city and uh, to see how uh, well development in our country is good for them to broaden their horizon. Yeah, I'll just, uh, I've got a comment here from our Facebook page. Richard Mahoon says, uh, the youth development blueprint is a typical government word salad that shows how out of touch they are with the Hong Kong youth of today. I wonder if any of our government officials involved in this actually talk to anyone under 40. I'm surprised they don't have the obligatory cartoon character doing the promotion. Um, do you, do you think having a cartoon character or a mirror band member would help to get the blueprint on the on the radar of young people? Uh, of course, um, yes. Uh, this is a very good idea. Uh, have they ever want to say some uh, idea? Is uh, I want to promote idea in this. I think our government should also promote the collaboration with different youth groups and institutions. Yes. All right. Well, that has been. Thank you very much for joining us on the show today. Carrie Lee, chairperson of Hong Kong Southern Youth District Youth Alliance, although by her own admission, she's about five years out of the range, but we're not going to hold that against her. And we appreciate having her on Back Chat today. All right. Thanks to our guests and thanks to you, all of our listeners, for calling and getting in touch online today. Uh, thanks also to our producer today, uh, Yuki Tung, and our sound man today. I see Andy Kwok in the booth smiling at him, smiling at me uh, with his beautiful brown eyes. Um, a quick note, a little bit of miscellaneous. Happy birthday to John A. McDonald. Who, you may ask? Canada's first prime minister would have turned 207 years old today. He left us too soon. I did not know that. A little bit of trivia. You know, my Canadians got to get it in. Um, we're looking at the weather. Cloudy with a few rain patches. Max temperature around 19 degrees. So you might want to bring a small umbrella out with you today. Uh, this, I'm Andrew Work here with Jenny Lamb on Back Chat. And it's uh, 18 degrees Celsius and 90% humidity. How can you be sure you're not buying fakes? Easy. Just purchase at shops with a no-fake sign. The Intellectual Property Department is running the no-fakes pledge scheme. All participating shops have promised to sell genuine goods. The no-fake sign will be updated every year to show the year of validity. You can download the no-fakes pledge mobile app to find the shops that carry the logo. And you can find online shops too. The time is 9.30 and now the news with Barry O'Rourke. Legislator Lam Chun Singh has urged the government to increase Hong Kong's minimum wage to $46 an hour, up from the $40 an hour approved yesterday by the Executive Council. The chair of the Federation of Hong Kong and Kowloon Labour Unions said grassroots workers have struggled to maintain their living standards and called for the minimum wage to be reviewed annually instead of every two years. The former chief financial officer of the Trump organization has been handed a five-month prison sentence for tax evasion as part of a plea deal. Alan Weisselberg had admitted charges relating to a large-scale tax fraud